Again, we welcome all of you here this morning to those online as well. Welcome to Calvary Chapel North Country this morning. We're absolutely blessed that you came. As you're grabbing your Bibles and you're opening up to Revelation chapter 15, we'll be taking, yes, the whole chapter. That's a rare moment, but it's only eight verses. It is the shortest chapter of all of the book of Revelation. And so we'll take all eight verses, Lord willing. <laughs> much into these verses, but much is important to understand. They obviously, we will get more into the details as we press forward in the book of Revelation. But let us, let us read here, and you can follow along, and I'll read it in verses 1 through 8, and then we'll take it verse by verse. For understanding. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. After these things, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we study your word here, Lord, again, bring clarity, bring understanding, bring application to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. In chapter 15, as it unfolds in front of us this morning, is a time, the period of time known as the tribulation, the seven-year period called the tribulation, and it's the seventh-year period following the rapture of the church. In chapter 15 is a prelude. It's an introductory 
It's a chapter that brings a highlight of what is about to come in detail as we see in chapter 16 and 17. But in this set, or what we call set the stage of these seven bowls containing the seven plagues, the last seven plagues that God says will be poured upon what we refer to as the bowl judgments on this fallen world who is left still which is our coming judgments of God, by which the power of Babylon is broken. We, saw, we will see that in chapter 16, verse 19. We could refer to it as chapter 15 being the calm before the storm. You can see it. There's a calmness. There's an eeriness. There's something. Chapter 15 will do that for us. 16, we'll experience the storm. So you must come back next week so you can see what's going to happen in the storm. Up to this point, there has been no mention of Babylon. Except for the announcement of the fall of, the, that, of that, that organization or that world system back in chapter 14 verse 8. But Babylon is explained in chapters 17 and 18 as a coalition of a political beast and a false prophet beast that will form this one world religion, one world political organization, one world government that will rule over the people during this seven year period of tribulation. Now, as we see here in verse 1 of chapter 15, it says, then I saw another sign in heaven. John said, I saw another sign. There's been previous signs. There's the nation of Israel noted in chapter 12, verse 1. The great dragon in, in verse 3 of chapter 12. And now we see the seven times, the seven angels with the seven bowls coming to bring judgment. God's judgment, God's wrath upon the fallen world. But he saw another sign in heaven. So we went from the, a view of what was happening on the earth and we will go now into the heavens to see the prelude of what will take place. When we see in chapter 16, we'll come back and see what takes place on the earth. So you always keep track of where you are looking and what view is coming from John. In this case, John is seeing from a heavenly view what is taking place in heaven before what will take place on this earth. But this sign in heaven, great and marvelous it is. Seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. It will be finally complete after the seven years, which puts us at the end of the seven year uh, period of tribulation. It's the final push to bring judgment upon those still alive. In chapter 14, it seemed to describe the completeness or the consummation of all things, ending with the fury of the battle of Armageddon, if you remember. By now, John will go back and describe God's judgment in more detail. This idea of stating what's going to happen, then comes the details in another chapter, then it reflects back, tells you an understanding that this is not a chronological arrangement of the book of Revelation. So you have to follow along here as you look and see the things that are taking place of God through God is giving to John. Here's what I'm going to talk about in a minute, but let me give you a prelude or introductory to it. Then later on we see the details. 
But John here now will go back and describe this God's judgment in more detail. But this idea of stating and restating is more detail and common of this prophecy. We see it in the Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through uh, all the way to chapter 2, verse 7. We see that God talked about the creations of the heavens and the earth and the creation. But then he goes back into chapter 2, verses 8 through 25 to give you more detail of the, what he just described in the first part of chapter 1 and first part of chapter 2 of the creation of this world. It's the same pattern that we see in the scriptures. But remember, we already saw what seemed to be the end back in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. We're just now getting to chapter 15 and 67 where we actually get the actual details of what he already described, what would happen in chapter 6. Then John took us over the same material, greater in detail, as we will see today. It will just be an interlude or an introduction to what we'll see in much more detail and graphic in chapter 16. But here in this first verse, we see the seven angels appearing. These are not the same angels that we've seen before. These are seven distinct angels having seven last plagues handed to them by God, which is the wrath of God that will be poured out onto this fallen world. This idea is also seen in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 21, where it says, Then, if you walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. So God in the Old Testament is consistent, as we see in the New Testament. He gives us warnings. Obey me, listen to me, follow me. If you don't, there brings that decision, that choice of you to reject God will bring judgment seven times. God is a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. He's always has shown us from the very beginning of time. When man rebelled, Adam and Eve rebelled, he was showing mercy and grace through the whole time, through the Old Testament and New Testament, to draw people through a decision that they have as a free will agent, a free will that he's given us to be choose him or to reject him. But he also tells you there's a consequence if you're not obedient and, and, and accept him and follow him. There is consequences. It's just like a parent to a child. You warn them. Uh, Johnny, <laughs> hopefully there's no Johnny here. Let me think of someone that is not in the congregation, not a name. I always do that. Oh, Joe. I don't know. I don't know. Buddy, you better re listen to your dad. There's consequences, buddy. How's that? That's, that's pretty neutral for most guys, dads to their, their sons. Buddy or moms, buddy, you better be listening. Just say Joe. Okay. Joe was offended by that, you know, back then. No, I'm kidding. Buddy, listen to your father. If not, there's consequences. God says this throughout the scriptures. Obedience. Obedience. Not because you're forced to do it. He's freely giving you a free decision to do it. We don't have to. We get to. You understand? 
Our lives in darkness was spiraling out of control and heading to hell. And God made a way. He revealed himself to you and his love for you. And you get to make a choice. Do I want to go to hell or do I want to be in heaven? Do I want to be in darkness and pain and suffering the rest of my life? Or do I want to be with the presence of God? There's always light. Always goodness. Always a love. He gives you choice. I pray you all have made the right choice. You chose Jesus. But we see here there's consequences. And now we're in the part of the story where he has given and shown mercy and grace through all of society. It's now at the end of the age. It's the end of now the church age. Yes, it's gone. Now we see at the very end of the age where he's going to deal with Israel and deal with those who have rejected Israel, but also those who gave their life during this seven-year period of tribulation. He's dealing with everybody, especially the nation of Israel. He hasn't given up on the nation of Israel. But these seven last plagues are God's judgment on a human rebellion, depravity, uh, depraved society, they have disobedience and contrary. They love the world and they hate God. And we see it so clear today. Everything that God has put in place, that God is the one that created, and now society, the world has twisted that completely. He created man and woman. Look what a depraved rebellious society now says about man and woman. He created marriage. Look what society has done to marriage. He created family. Look what he's done to the depravity and just craziness of family. It goes on and on and on because Satan is at the last end. He knows it's coming to an end here. Soon and very soon. He knows what his destination is into the lake of fire for eternity. But he's going to take as many people down with him as he can. But you don't have to make that decision to follow him. Follow Jesus. See, at this point, John saw the seven angels holding the seven bowls of God's wrath. The remaining wicked world is about to drink, as we saw in chapter 14, verse 10. They're going to drink the wine of the wrath of God. But before the pouring, before sending that third woe that we saw back in chapter 11, verse 14, there's three woes. And when you hear God say woe, you better say woe. It's like a parent say, whoa, whoa, buddy, whoa, whoa. You hear dad say that or mom say that, you, buddy better be running. Because judgment's coming. Correction's going to happen. Punishment, not going to spare the rot. When you hear the woe. When God's woe is a guarantee, it's not going to, it's not going to, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. There's no, t- go in the corner and we're going to have time out. This is not a timeout moment. This is actually seven plagues coming upon this fallen world. We will see it next week. It is not going to be pretty. And it is God's wrath. The wrath of God is complete. It means it's full, complete. There's nothing else to be done. This is complete. It's going to be done. This is it. The word for wrath is Thumos, there's two different words, Arge, and then also Thumos. This is Thumos, which is the hot wrath of God coming down. 
It's complete. The ancient Greek word here is to reach the end. It's end is the end. The hot wrath of God will fulfill an eternal purpose that God said from the beginning this would happen and is now playing out. It's now happening. Because God doesn't just blow things, doesn't blow smoke. He didn't sit there and blow smoke. Oh, he's just, it's just smoke. There's no fire to this. I assure you as when you read chapter 16 and read ahead, there's not just smoke here. There's fire and brimstone coming. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16, God says to Abraham, Know certainly, certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them for 400 years. That was verse 13. Where were they in captivity for 400 years? In Egypt. Then you drop down to verse, uh, chapter 15, uh, verse 16 of Genesis. It says, your people will be afflicted and enslaved because, why? The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete or full. So why are they in Egypt for 400 years? Because God, through his mercy, was trying to reach the Amorites, those worldly people, those people who were serving other gods, the, the, the wickedness of the Amorites. He was trying to reach them for 400 years to give these Canaanites an opportunity to repent and to turn to him. And God preserved the, the Israelites in a, in, in a uh, Goshen there in Egypt and protected them, even through from Egypt, all of Egypt, protected them, allowed them to grow before they brought them into the promised land where the Canaanites were, who were evil people. And he says, you need to turn, you need to know me. But they rejected God, God of the Israelites. He rejected them. What was their consequence? God said to God's people, destroy them. They've got to go. They're, they're that wicked. Why? People say that's a, a loving God. No, it is a very merciful God. He'd been working with the Emirates for 400 years plus, trying to get their attentions and get them to repent, to finally surrender their life to Christ. To know who God is, the God of the creation. And their decision was to continue to be hard-hearted and stiff-necked and rebel, pridefully rebel. And so because of that, there's a consequence. God waited for the Emirates to turn from their evil practices. Until finally, when the iniquity of the Emirates was full, it was complete, God said, enough is enough, time you have to go. Why? Because they were so sick in their destruction of themselves and society, they were so in darkness and depravity, they were actually killing themselves and they don't even know it. And that cancer that was killing them of, of sin inside them was starting to permeate across all society. And when you see this darkness, this sickness in one's life of sin that's absolutely destroying them, and all of us know how destroyed we were by our sin prior to giving our life to Christ. That that sin in order to, is, was going to continue, and so God simply said, putting them out of their misery, they're in misery, they don't even know it. 
God is not being cruel here. In Genesis, he's, God is patient. He's long-suffering, but we must not mistake his patience for apathy. Don't mistake the fact that you continue to be in your sin and God has not done anything to correct you, to change you, to, to move it. Don't take that as apathy and uh, like of imp- importance of, or, or approval of sin in your life, that God was going okay with that in your life. Don't be fooled by that. That's a trick of the enemy to convince you it's okay to live however you want to. God's going to love you and accept you anyway. It's just a a lie from the pit of hell. I'm telling you, not personally, but what the word of God tells me and tells you if you would read it and believe it. There's consequences to our sins. And then once you give your life to Christ and take uh, his payment, what he did on the cross for all your sins as your, your, your payment, your punishment, then it's his death and resurrection that will cover your sins and mine. It's a free gift of salvation. He hands it to you. But you have a choice if you want to receive that gift of forgiveness then we will not be held. To the destruction, we are now saved. We'll be spared from the wrath of God and be in his presence forever. Amen? God is a merciful God. He's a patient God. But at some point, correction will need to be made. I always learned it was better for you to come freely to him and pour out your heart and confess you're a sinner that needs to be saved than to receive the wrath or the correction and judgment. It's better to just come freely and surrender yourself. Bow yourself down. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. In verse 2 we see, John said, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. And those who have the victory over the beast, this tells you who they are, those who have victory over the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet, over his image, remember the image that was in the temple at the midpoint part of the tribulation, they put up an image and they were to bow down and worship him. We see over his mark, these people did not take the mark on their right hand or their forehead. They didn't take the mark of worshiping this beast, this false, this antichrist, this this leader. Over the number of his name, 666, the name of his name, didn't take that, didn't recognize it, rejected it, fled from it. Now these are the ones standing on the sea of glass having harps of God. They're worshiping God because they chose God. They didn't choose the world. They didn't choose this world leader who were going to force them to comply to worship him. See, 
The sea of glass is mingled with fire. Some believe this is a literal sea of glass. Again, you can work that through in your studies there. But the sea is, is designed to reflect the glory of God. We see it in chapter 4. Its description is like unto crystal. Like a crystal glass, clear as can be. And it speaks of the holiness of God. Here the sea is mingled with the fire. It speaks of the divine judgment proceeding from God's holiness. It's an incredible image that I cannot wait to experience and see. As, as smooth and clear as crystal and glass, we will all be standing upon. Those who, did, who chose to give their life to Christ, those who did not choose to follow the Antichrist or take a mark, or any of those who, uh, in the church age or even during the tribulation age, these, we are going to see things that we can't even put our minds, clarity of what that really is going to experience. It's just like, oh, this is going to be an awesome thing. Well, that's a great simple word to say, an awesome. But when you have no words to describe it in our human terms, We'll experience it, no question. Because of the images in this chapters are connected to the book of Exodus. If you study the book of Exodus, you say, oh, yes, as I read through this, there's a lot of connections here. Let me see if I can help bring clarity of some of those connections with the book of Exodus. Because some simply see this indication of the color red or the illusion of the Red Sea connection or the deliverance from bondage from Egypt and now the bondage from sin. And, and it goes back and forth even into the plagues. Moses, the tabernacle, the cloud of God's glory. The, the chapter shows the ultimate exodus or the freedom of God's people from the sinful and persecuting world. You can make these connections as you study Re Exodus and study the, the book of Revelation. But both have victory as well. As we bring, God brings them out of Egypt, out of bondage, they have victory. They're free. When we give our life to Christ and we're now in the presence of God, we've gone through and we, again, there's victory in Christ. In that relationship. And these are those who were victorious over the beast through their faithfulness unto death. They did not bow their knee to the false prophet nor did they which is a false religion or nor did they bow their knee to the the antichrist the political world leader even though the antichrist kills them for their faith they didn't lose they didn't they actually gained because of their martyrship of the fact that they kept their their devotion to Christ and not to the antichrist and they were killed for it but that gave them victory we see the victory over the beast John says here they're not defeated the early church consistently described the day of martyrdom as a day of victory most people wouldn't do it. You were killed because of your belief in Jesus? Oh man, you, you, your life ended too early. It's, it's, it's terrible. Yes, being beheaded over, over in the other countries because of their faith in Jesus and not following another religion takes their head off. Many people think, oh, that's terrible. It is terrible, but not really for the person any longer. Their person is, is whole now. They're in the arms of Jesus. 
They're completely whole. There's no more pain or suffering. They're going to be rewarded for their martyrdom, for their devotion to Christ to death. I know it's hard for us to get our heads around that because we're just always trying to preserve our life. How can I make my life better? How can I make, how can I make myself look better? Feel better? And now with AI and you see all the headlines, now we're going to try to preserve life that you'll never die. Why? Because they're trying to go against the truths of what God's word says. Why do you think they're doing these things? Some very well-pronounced leaders are declaring that you and I can become gods because of AI. Just take the neurochip. Just take this. Take this. We're going to do this. We're going to, you're going to be more knowledgeable than God. It is amazing to watch what God said would happen. And it's playing out in our time. You ask someone who was a believer 100 years ago, they couldn't have imagined how this is all going to play out. 50 years ago, you couldn't even see how this would play out. You see the things that are happening in our time that no one of our brothers and sisters prior to this could even back the days when John was writing this. All God did is give him the vision of what this was going to be. The details we can see playing out in many things. But we're going to have victory over the beast because we're not going to take and be deceived by Satan to take our eyes off of Jesus and follow the world or a world leader, regardless of that person's name. We don't follow a world leader. We follow Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And that should remind us from election to election, we do not follow man. We follow Jesus. We must keep our eyes on Jesus. That keeps us grounded, my brothers and sisters. You won't go squirrely over the news. I don't need you to go squirrely in the head. You already have enough problems with that little squirrel in the head. <laughs> but these believers are going to be standing on the sea of glass. The word on here, standing on, in the Greek word is epi. It means on or over or beside. Many believe the architecture of heaven the pavement of the sea of glass is a physical representation of the word of God. Connecting the idea of the tabernacle, lavir, the water, and the washing of the water by the word, we see that promise in the Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, is perhaps giving it an understanding that we could say these saints are standing on the word. We must stand on the word of God. He puts his word above his own name. So what do you think Satan and uh, those who do not follow Jesus only in name only, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to discredit and try to tell you, you do not need to read the word of God. Do you see how the enemy works? He's always going to keep you away from the truth. 
And so those who lose their lives because they choose to listen to the gospel message that was preached by the 144,000 Jewish virgin males of during this period of time, all those little evangelists going out there spreading the gospel, people were getting saved during the tribulation time. And they believed God rather than take the mark of the beast. They chose to stand up and follow him and not bow down before the image that was set in front of the inside the tabernacle of the Holy of Holies. Now they stand in the sea of glass. Not only that, they have harps. They're playing a harp. They're worshiping God. There's only two instruments of all of the book of Revelation. Do you know those two, two instruments? Trumpet and a harp. Only the harp is a musical instrument. The trumpet is not a musical instrument in the book of Revelation. That is, a, that is of judgment. That is of, <laughs> of announcement. But they have a harp. The entire scene here is reminiscent of Israel following Exodus. Nation had been delivered from Egypt from by the blood of the Lamb. The Egyptian army had been destroyed by the Red Sea. And in thankfulness to God, the Israelites stood by the sea on the other side and they sang a song. Worshiping God. What song was it? The song of Moses. The tribulation saints whom John saw and heard were standing by the sea of glass in heaven and just as the Israelites stood by the Red Sea, they were singing the, uh, the song of Moses, also the song of, Lamb, of the Lamb that we see here now in Revelation chapter 15. Yes, they're going to be singing. Look at what the song is, verses 3 and 4. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying what? What did they sing? Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. They're declaring as we worship, you're to worship as you sing a song. Make sure you're singing a song to God of truth. There are a lot of Christian songs out there that are not biblically sound. You should not be singing those as a worship song to God. Because they're not accurate, they're not biblical. Many songs today are being twisted. It's all about you. You're singing to yourself. You're not singing to God and, and bringing to light of who he is in your life. But these saints are singing truth. Great and marvelous are your works. Not great and marvelous of my works. Look at me. Look what I've done for God. Oh, look at this. Look at that. Oh, amazing, isn't it? Everyone look at what I've done for God. Who's keeping track of what I'm doing for God? Isn't that great and marvelous? Only by the grace of God that he actually used you. Because <laughs> apart, from, apart from him, you can do nothing of any eternal value. So stay humble that God even would choose to use a sinner who's saved by grace for his work. But here, these saints are actually great and marvelous. Are your works, Lord God Almighty? Then they sang, just and true are your ways, O king of the saints. You're just. 
You're true. It's your ways are true and just. Not my ways, not man's ways, not the worldly ways, not the religious ways. The way, the way of, <laughs> that's why we call the church, uh, the, the radio, the way. It, it, it is truly the way of grace that God has really, it's his way. There's no other way to live a life that's pleasing and fulfilling and, and, and a joy and a peace within one person's life. You cannot tell me. I mean, I have a lot of people tell me this. Oh, I have peace, Pastor. Do you know Jesus? No. I'll, I'll think about it. Well, then you don't have God's peace. I'm just going to wait for the temperature to change and the, and the weather to change and, and you get a boo-boo on your little pinky toe and drop your weights on your, on your foot. Then I assure you, you're not going to be peaceful. Because things are going to change. But when you're talking about God's peace and God's joy, that's deep within. And only can be fulfilled with a personal relationship with Jesus. The only way you can have that peace. There is no other way. Many people out there in religions will try to tell you that there are other ways. But they're, again, from the pit of hell. God's very clear to receive his peace. He's the Prince of Peace. Joy only comes from a relationship, personal relationship with Him. Why? Because just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. He's the King. Who shall not fear you? Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? Who's, who's out of their right mind who doesn't wouldn't, wouldn't worship you? And, 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 and recognize you're the Lord. You're the one in control and glorify your name. Who would not do that? Why? Look at the next verse, the next, uh, the next line. For you alone are holy. There's only one who's holy. And that's our Lord. For all nations shall come, all nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. They've been played out. Only one song is sung. Now some people say, is that one song or is that two songs? Is it the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb? Or is it just one song with two different names, with two different views? I don't care. I just know I'm going to be singing a song. Or I'm going to be hearing someone else singing a song up there. Because some people believe this is just the Israelites who were saved through the tribulations are the ones singing the song. Why? Because it's the song of Moses. Again, you can, you can work that through in your minds and, and ponder and meditate on that. But I kind of look at it this way. That the song of Moses, the song of the Lamb, the two titles refer to a single song. Because the words are, are together as a single song in the scripture. Both in the back of the Exodus and here, it's just one song. But here's a perfect union, though. Those two names, titles, represent the union between the law and love. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, one. Between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
It is one or two songs. It doesn't matter to me. There is a singing of the song of Moses, which is the celebration of the Jehovah's victory over Israel's foes and enemies at the time in Egypt, etc. And then you have the song of the Lamb, which is the song of redemption of the new of the new covenant. And so the song of Moses recorded in Exodus 15. Some believe it could be Deuteronomy 32 that is referencing. I lean toward Exodus. Why? When we get into the later chapters, it's really emphasis on the Exodus experience. So I lean toward Exodus 15, but I let you work that through it as you meditate on the word. But notice this, in Exodus 15, it's the very first song in the Bible. The very first song in the Bible is that song. The victory over the enemies that God gave them. And with their backs to the Red Sea and three million Jews looking up to see Pharaoh's army barreling down on them, they had no clue. They thought they were going to be wiped out. There was nothing to do. They couldn't run. What's going to happen? Moses... They cried out to Moses, you let us into a trap. Leader, it's your fault. They forgot that God is the one who did this work through Moses leading them there. But there are always people always looking for the leader to blame. And they cried out because no one of them knew what God was about to do. Something totally unexpected totally unpredictable and totally unprecedented. They have never seen the parting of a sea ever in history of their lives. And God showed up and made a way. Now, I've always been encouraged by these verses because there are times in our lives when your back is against something and the and the destruction it seems to be sure of your life. You're at the lowest point in your life. You're at the end of your life. You have come to the end. And all you see is darkness. I'm telling you, if you will turn and trust and look up, God is going to make a way. It will be unpredictable. It will be unexpected. And it will be unprecedented of how God is going to lift you up and make a way when there was no way at that moment. But you have to do this life by faith and not by sight. You must trust in the God that we worshipped earlier. He knows every thought. He's your maker. He's your father. He knows what's best. Will you trust him with your life? So we find, so it was not until after God intervened. After the Red Sea parting experience, after the children of Israel crossed safely to the other side on dry land, that they broke out and worshiped on the other side a song, the Lord had triumphed 
gloriously. That's where we see De Deuteronomy 32 as well. But then we get to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, Revelation 15 today, and now we see the song of the Lamb. And it's the last song sung in the Bible. The other one was the first song. Here is the last song. It's the beginning and at the end we see this glassy sea shows victory over the Antichrist, bringing God's people into heaven. And this last song speaks and deals with the, the, the beautiful rapture, the beautiful salvation of God's people. And the song is really deeply rooted in the Old Testament. Why? Because it's Praises of God's works, God's ways, God's worthiness. He alone is holy. God's worship. All nations are going to come to a point they're going to worship him. You, Lord, your, your, you, your, you, you, your. It's all about him. Not about us. And these martyrs are only focused on God. They're not focusing on anybody else but God. They didn't even focus on the cost or the cost that they had to go through. Do you know what it cost me here to get to, up to heaven? Do you realize what I gave up? Do you know what I have to give up to go to be able to have a relationship with Christ and then go to heaven? Do you realize the cost? That's foolish talk. Brand new believers talk like that. Non-believers would talk like that. But once you're saved and realize only by the grace of God that you have been forgiven of all your sins and you're not paying the penalty for those sins, that language disappears from our mouths. You no longer suck. Oh, you know what I had to give up to have a relationship with Christ? Are you kidding me? You were in darkness and that sin was destroying your life and that selfishness was destroying you and you had no idea it was destroying you and everybody around you, your families, your family, your kids, a rippling effect. You had no clue because you were so blinded. And by the grace of God, he saved you. That should cause you and I to what? Worship him. With all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Amen? Yes. Let's finish this up. Verse 5. After these things, I looked and behold, the temple. The Greek word here is naos. It means the holy of holies. Right in the center of the temple. I mean, we're talking series right into the, where the presence of God was. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open, and out of the temple came the seven angels having the seven plagues, clothed in pure white linen, just like the priests had. They had pure white linen, and having their chest girded with the golden bands that went around uh, their chest. And we see this beautiful picture because these seven angels are coming from, we see from the, the, the place of holy of holies, from the presence of God with the direction given by God and the wrath of what will be poured out that we will see in the details in the chapter to come. But we see back in, even in Exodus chapter 25 verses 8 and 9, and Hebrews 8, 9, 
reminds us that the tabernacle God told Moses to build was based on a heavenly pattern. It was to be based on the tabernacle that was in heaven. was to be then modeled down for his, for his presence to be in and his people to gather together. And we see that this, this beautiful rendition of here, that of, of, of now, it's not the, something that Moses made or man made. No, they're coming right from the actual tabernacle the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony. And it's the temple of the tabernacle here refers to a heavenly reality of that tabernacle, not an earthly copy. It's pure. It's right and it's good. And out of that temple came this. Yes, out of God's temple came this. He's a loving God, but he's also a just God. Lovingly showed all of humanity that God sent his only begotten son to come down and take on flesh to die for the sin of the world. That is love. To make a way. But he's also a God that says, if you rebel and reject me, there are consequences. That's justice. And so we see here this Seven plagues given to the seven angels by God. They're coming directly from the heavenly temple, from the presence of the throne of God. They do not act on their own authority, only by God's direction do they do this. And what happens, verse 7? Then one of the four living creatures, one of the cherubims, when we studied that, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke. So the angels, I picture, leaving out and the place fills with smoke into the temple. From the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, From his power, there is smoke filling the temple. And no one was able to enter the temple. Notice the word, till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. You can picture it. Cherubim is, you know, there ministering to and, and handing and, and doing things with the bowls and God's giving direction to these seven angels that this is what you're going to go out and these are what the bowls and this is what the wrath of God looks like going out and you're going to be pouring those out based on my instructions and timing and all these things, which we will get into the next chapter. Read ahead. It's a great read. But the full contents of each bowl is going to be quickly and easily and completely poured out by each of these angels on that fallen world. Now, the King James Version, and maybe one of your other versions of the Bible, says the word instead of bowls, golden vials full of wrath of God. The word vial is not really a good, is really a poor translation of that. It's really a shallow pan-like golden bowls or censers that were used in the tabernacle by the priests when they were burning incense to form a form of, during the time of, of sacrifices. And so that's really, I believe, is bowl is the proper interpretation. You can write that into your Bible. 
But when the cloud of glory fills the temple in heaven, no one can enter. And it was the same when Moses could not enter the tabernacle when the smoke of the cloud of God's glory, sometimes called the Shekinah glory, filled the tent in there of his presence. We see that in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. But I love when you study and understand this, why did he have to, why did God fill with his, the smoke in, the, in, in, in a heavenly tabernacle? It's because he's sending a message to all of those messages to you and I, but to those present in, in, in heaven, but out of heaven. Those who are still down here and the wrath is coming. That the bulls and the cloud came from the glory of God, yes, from his power, yes. And it was a reminder of God's special presence and glory at that moment, but even in the midst of this dis- devastating judgment. To come. But notice the language. No one is able to enter the temple. Who, I'm sitting there going, who in heaven right now is, I'm, we're standing around on the glassy sea, we're listening to the harps played, we see the, the elders, we see all the people we haven't seen in years because they died ahead of us. Who would go into that temple? But it wasn't, it's not us in heaven that he's talking about. What I believe he's saying is those who were on the earth who now sees and starting to feel the wrath of these bowls are going to cry out and ask, please save me, it's too late. Right now, you and I have a promise that what we can do and through prayer, how do we go into the temple, into the, right into the boldness of the throne of God? How do we do that? By prayer. Because Jesus has made a way for us to do that. That has gone away by this time. People on this earth will not be able to go boldly into the throne of God because it is closed. This declares that judgment was now irreversible. There is no one interceding for anybody else. It's closed. A person cannot say, okay, uh, uh, okay, I'm, I'm now ready to give my life to Christ. It's too late. It's too late. Because the access to the temple in heaven would not long be denied. The day of intercession is no longer to avert the judgments and the wrath of God upon this world. Nothing's, no one's stopping God to, it's complete. Anyone and everyone who was going to give their life to Christ had already given their life to Christ. Now it comes to Jaya. It's now the bowls are set. The judgment's coming out. And we'll read that next week, Lord willing. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we do thank you for your grace and your mercy because you now make a way for us to surrender our lives to you, to truly live a life for you. Lord, how many times we have been so deceived by religion, thinking we have a relationship with you because of a religious establishment or organization 
Oh, Lord, please, I pray that no one is deceived by that. Or the fact that their grandparents were saved, their mothers and fathers were saved, and because of that, you just kind of always been around religion. You know of Jesus, but Lord, let us remind ourselves, Satan knows who Jesus is. I pray that everyone listening to my voice truly remembers the day they surrendered their life. They just broke. They, they surrendered their life completely and asked, understanding that they're a, they're a sinner and they recognize they need to be saved from that sin, that wicked way. And that they just surrendered by faith to you, Lord Jesus, and you alone. And they remembered the day when you came into their life and that 100-pound gorilla of guilt and shame was lifted from their shoulders. May you remind us, Lord, of that day of our salvation. May we never forget that day when you changed our life, changed the direction of our life. The day you cleansed us. The day we were re our spirit was regenerated. May we celebrate and praise you and worship you. But Lord, if there's someone here saying, I don't remember ever having that day. I pray right now you're knocking at the door of their heart and say, hello, I'm Jesus I'm revealing myself to you. Open up your life. Choose to repent. Change your way. Come, to invite me into your life and I will do a new work in you. Set you free from all the bondage and sin. I pray they will surrender your life today. And if you've done that in your heart right now, you're calling out to God right now and you're saying, God, save me. I'm a wicked man, a wicked woman. I know I need to be saved. I pray right now you're raising your hand, surrendering all to Jesus, devoting your life to him this day. In Jesus' name, amen.